Blog Talk Radio. And good afternoon, everybody. Uh, it is my delight and pleasure once again to uh, invite back Dr. Grace Jackson, um, an outstanding psychiatrist, a friend, a good friend, and the author of what I consider an extremely important book, uh, uh, Rethinking Psychiatric Drugs, A Guide for Informed Consent. And how are you today? I'm doing just fine. It sure is nice to be back with you for a third visit, so thank you for having me on your program again. It's, it's more than my pleasure. Um, and I hope it's for the pleasure of those who are listening. And we are getting a nice response. I think that uh, th- this will continue to be heard for months afterwards. Terrific. Um, so let's talk about something I consider extremely important in terms of informed consent and psychiatric drugs, a topic that has made its way uh, into the media and I think has confused people. Well, the drug companies make sure that everybody remains totally confused by all of this. Um, and that is the relationship of antidepressants such as Prozac and Paxil, uh, the what are called the SSRIs, and the uh, violence. Um, uh, many of the children who have gone to school and shot up their teachers and their um, <laughs> And their uh, colleagues, their friends, seem to either have been on an SSRI within a couple of weeks or had been taken off an SSRI. And uh, can you talk to this issue? Sure. I think when you said there's a great deal of confusion around this topic, uh, that's a, a very succinct and accurate way to portray or introduce the whole topic. Why is there confusion? Well, for a couple of reasons, if you and I were having the same conversation and imagine we were discussing LSD, acid, or we were discussing methamphetamine, or discussing even cannabis, marijuana, I doubt very much that people in the government or even people in the medical profession uh, would be taking exception to the concerns about the impact of those mind-altering drugs and the potential for bad outcomes, including violence. (coughs) Excuse me. What... What really makes it so unusual is to then create uh, a false sense of reassurance for another category of mind-altering chemicals and to pretend that because those chemicals are being given by someone with the initials MD or someone who has been to some other institution of medical training, be they a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant, that this somehow enshrines these particular chemicals as safer than other mind-altering substances. So that's one level of confusion or obfuscation. The, the other uh, more important concern, as I see it, is, is to really ask the question, are these, in fact, chemicals which uh, are substances that produce biological effects that would in any way, shape, or form defend uh, a theory or a hypothesis that these could, in fact, um, induce or enhance aggression or violence in at least some of the people who consume them? And, in fact, there are several valid theories as to why this particular class of medications uh, is very likely to do this. Yeah, and by, by the way, Grace, we're not just talking about, I should have said initially, it's not merely um, homicide we're talking about, but suicide. Correct. We're, correct. we're talking about uh, destructive acts, whether they're directed against the self or directed against others. Or um, One of the things that I, so I've sort of... Uh, 
uh, a way to think through this is to really understand or approach the idea of destructive acts or violence in terms of chemicals, in terms of brain parts, or in terms of processes. And I can give you some examples of, of each one of those, you know, what, how the SSRI medications as a class altering chemicals, brain parts, and processes that would make certain people, or perhaps even a, a large number of people, feel like they could actually go and become violent. And of that, uh, of that group, some people, unfortunately, do actually act on these thoughts and feelings. Go ahead. So chemically, uh, when we're talking about these serotonin reuptake inhibitors that have been marketed to the public for the past, uh, goodness, 21 years, as medications that are actually increasing serotonin transmission in the brain. This is largely, uh, uh, well, over, uh, hugely oversimplified, the idea that a person could tamper with just one particular chemical in the brain and not create disturbances in other chemicals. So that is, that is one aspect that has since been proven, uh, or, or let's say uh, disproven. So the idea that these are somehow selective serotonin agents has been largely discredited over the past 20 years of research. The idea, too, that these are substances that actually enhance or boost serotonin transmission in the brain is largely suspect and was, in fact, known even to the drug manufacturers back uh, when they were first developing these chemical entities that this may, in fact, not reflect what the long-term effects would be. Uh -huh. So the serotonin hypothesis itself is something that uh, is, is complicated. Uh, more recent research has shown that these are chemicals which actually mimic or, um, well, I guess mimic would be the best word. They actually repeat many of the chemical effects of, of alcohol. So they boost GABA, that is gamma aminobutyric acid, GABA levels in the brain, uh, and they actually have a huge effect on neurosteroids in the brain so that it would make sense that some people who would take these chemicals would experience similar effects as if they had had some alcohol to drink. Now, we know that some, you know, alcohol can make some people uh, more social and uh, a little bit more outgoing or, or maybe take some risks that they normally wouldn't take. Uh, so it can have disinhibiting effects on some individuals. It can make some people likely to take risks, and it can make uh, – people likely to do things without thinking through the full consequences of their actions. So those are a couple of the chemical things. There are other chemical effects like dopamine effects um, that actually uh, make these drugs much more similar in their effects to antipsychotic drugs or the neuroleptics in, in terms of suppressing dopamine transmission or dopamine activity in the brain. And that is usually something that uh, Neurologists worry about in Parkinson's patients that when you are actually losing the dopamine transmission, you would expect or be prepared to see people become more dysphoric, uh, more depressed. And, and that certainly would explain why some people on these medications experience a worsening of their depressions and uh -huh. actually have uh, the emergence of new suicidal thoughts or worsening of suicidal impulses. So that's some of the, the chemical explanation. Um, another way of looking at violence is to actually just start looking at chunks of the brain, like anatomic regions. And I think most of us, right, used to teach uh, psychology. So you probably heard about the guy Phineas Gage, right? Yes, yes. Ph okay, Phineas Gage was a famous railroad worker who had a railroad spike, unfortunately, uh, launch up and, and lodge in his frontal lobe. And he survived the injury but had profound changes in his personality. Yeah, he didn't become famous 
uh, Grace until after he got the spike. <laughs> <laughs> after the spike, okay. It was after the spike, and he had this profound uh, tragic injury that resulted in a profound change in his personality. So he became aggressive, lost control, uh, lost impulse control. And this is one of the classic examples for people who are, are trained in, uh, in studying aggression and violence to always remember the lesson of Phineas Gage. So the idea that the frontal lobe, the very front portion of the brain, and the part of the brain, quite honestly, that uh, many people say is, is the most important aspect of being human, uh, is you know, largely or, or very importantly uh, affected by many different kinds of mind-altering drugs, right, including, right. including these antidepressant drugs. We speak about hypofrontal or diminished frontal lobe uh, transmission or frontal lobe activity when people are on these medications. Another brain part that is affected by these medicines would be the temporal lobes. So when we talk about the hippocampus and we talk about the amygdala, the rage center of the brain, these are also parts of the brain that are being adversely affected by these drugs. And then, you know, stepping aside from brain parts and chemicals, we can just really talk more discreetly or I guess maybe a little bit more abstractly and say what are the processes that we're actually talking about? What process could possibly become worse or what process might be newly induced by these medications? And those I sort of divide up into, uh, you know, problems of judgment and problems of impulse control. So within the law, it's always important for doctors or forensic specialists to figure out one of two problems. Did a person who committed some kind of violent act uh, know the difference between right and wrong, right. which we would call judgment, or and or did that person lose the ability to conform his or her behavior to the requirements of the law? So we're talking about two different things, judgment and impulse control. Mm-hmm. And what we see with these substances, these chemicals, the, uh, the serotonin antidepressants, is that they can uh, certainly impair judgment where people become frozen in time, stop thinking about the consequences of their action, uh, lose the ability of these frontal lobe uh, uh, functions to actually inhibit certain behaviors uh, or to think through what they might do. Um, and in terms of impulse control, one of the... Uh, probably one of the most important things that has been studied for years is the link between a nervous restlessness called akathisia and the fact that this makes people so uncomfortable, all they can think about is putting themselves out of their misery, even if that means jumping out of the window of a very tall building or jumping what, off what, a bridge. Quickly, what are the, the, the symptoms of akathisia? Because I've had a number of people I've worked with uh, describe Akathisia as almost if the skin is being stripped off their bodies. I think that's the best description. Uh, the word akathisia really comes from inability to sit. It's from the Greek. Uh-huh. And uh, so this, this concept that people can't sit, what's interesting is, as you've, um, you know, you've probably become aware, as I have, that there are more and more um, advertisements in magazines for something called restless leg syndrome, yes, RLS. Yes. Okay, well, this is very interesting because when you think about it, what is restless legs? It means that somebody has the the feeling that they have to move their leg or maybe their legs won't stop moving, but the extent that there may be some overlap in these conditions is really quite interesting. But the sense of akathisia refers to both a motor component as well as a psychological component. And while both of these may be present, it's possible for one or both to be there, and it's possible for the condition to wax and wane. So Let me ask something. you this. Sure. Let me ask you this because that's fascinating. Um, I, I once had a discussion with somebody about restless legs disorder, mm-hmm. 
mm. and and uh, thought maybe you know mostly it seems to be women who are affected. Mm. And what does it mean when a woman can't stop moving her legs at night when she lies down? Mm. Uh, is this is this something that has to do with uh, sexuality and repressed sexuality? Right. You're raising now another really interesting idea. It would behoove us to ask what percentage of people with restless leg syndrome, so-called, are taking an antidepressant. Absolutely, and another another very viable question, uh, just related to what you just said, is to really ask the question: How many of the people who are presenting to neurologists with this complaint for the first time, or to an internal medicine doctor, um, have actually been on these medications in the past? And the fact that you know the, the concept or the potential for something that you have taken to actually induce some chemical disruptions that may in fact be long-lasting or latent is something that most doctors have been ill-prepared to really um, anticipate. Right. And so that's a very important question is to do a thorough review of what people may have been taking. There are also very important um, you know, questions uh, of, uh, of diet and uh, you know, possible deficiencies, um, possible problems with uh, chemicals, uh, you know, neurotoxicants that people may still be exposed to other than just medications. But again, the the main issue is to really pay attention to what someone may even have taken in the past and and still be experiencing or just experiencing effects of. So so what we're really, if to summarize this, it is distinctly possible that the effects of these drugs, like a variety of other drugs, I mean, to go back for a second, you'd mentioned alcohol uh, and uh, marijuana. Mm -hmm. Um, In the early 80s, uh, when I was still active as a, as a therapist, uh, we had large numbers of people who uh, became involved with cocaine and crack cocaine, which was an extremely um, uh, a concentrated dose of cocaine. Mm-hmm. And these people would smoke, and some of them would throw their furniture, their wives and their children out the window. Mm. The violence was enormous. So we're really describing a set of drugs that really have to be looked at in spite of the fact that they're legal, as within the same realm as, as these other drugs, and therefore the total effect could be a tremendous increase in suicide and homicide and other kinds of destructive acts. Right. I, I think one of the um, the real problems, uh, and, and this is throughout medicine and, and throughout governmental regulation, is to take any class of chemicals, it doesn't matter which one we're talking about, and to expect that class to have homogeneous effects, meaning that whenever you give that substance to everybody in the population, they will all respond the same. And so, if anything, what the history of medicine has demonstrated is that medications have very heterogeneous effects right. um, because individuals vary and because people in their environments will vary and people will be taking different combinations of substances. But even I think the, the most important thing for me has, to, has, to, has been to come to an awareness that we're really not talking about a paradoxical effect. The, um, you know, the real efforts or the real focus of the medical associations, including the American Psychiatric Association, and certainly the pharmaceutical companies, um, they've all gone out of their way to really paint this idea of drug-related suicide or drug-related homicide or other forms of violence as paradoxical uh, effects, meaning very, very rare, very unlikely to occur. You might see it in 1%. You might see it once in a blue moon. 
In fact, if if the chemical descriptions or our, our current best explanation of the biological underpinnings of violence are correct, these may in fact be the primary effects of the drugs in terms of suppressing dopamine, boosting boosting GABA, disrupting serotonin release, and perhaps disrupting the stores of serotonin in the brain, so that, in fact, the primary effect of these drugs, this class of medications called SSRIs, is, in fact, to disrupt impulse control and to actually provoke some people over the edge to suicide or to homicide. So far from being paradoxical, I think the government has missed it on this one, and I think the medical organizations have completely missed it. I think that the the actual... You think they missed it or they purposely missed it? Well, I, I want to be kind enough to say they conveniently overlook it now. I think there are some people who, who miss it intentionally and actually lied about it. We certainly know that the drug companies have, have concealed the, the true effects, even if they were first detecting or noticing it in a small number of people. Right. But I can tell you from the standpoint of actually being a practitioner and, and looking back over my experience with patients, at the time I was receiving my training and first receiving my indoctrination into psychiatry, nobody prepared me for the fact that these kinds of uh, violent acts or aggression or worsening of symptoms could actually be attributed or caused by the drugs themselves. So it's only in retrospect that you can look back and see the fact, oh, my gosh, I had five or six patients try to kill themselves on the inpatient ward after these drugs were started, not before. And I don't think there were more than two times in my entire military experience that I ever evaluated a suicidal person in an emergency room who was not already on these drugs. So, in fact, my whole experience in psychiatry has been nothing but seeing violence with these drugs. Now, some people might say you just got unlucky or you had a bad batch of Prozac and Paxil. But, in fact, I have never in my experience seen these drugs actually act as heroic, life-saving, suicide-preventing drugs. Um, I, I would have a hard time proving that the drugs actually deliver that kind of effect. They, they may help with some other things in terms of uh, you know, family nurturance and, and more supports and that kind of thing in, in some people. But, in fact, I have never really had the experience of saying that these are drugs that prevent violence or prevent suicide. My emergency room experiences suggest otherwise. Well, and I've actually had the experience of seeing too many suicide attempts, even in the hospital. Well, let me add have... to this, because sure. it, it has turned out that at this point, the British government has banned these SSRIs for uh, children under 18. 18 and under, because of the high uh, incidences, high incidences of uh, suicide, homicide, and other violent acts. And um, in the United States, unfortunately, the Food and Drug Administration, which uh, not, some of us have relabeled the Federal Death Administration. <laughs> uh, you've never heard that expression before? No, I like it, though. It's, it yeah, seems quite um, accurate. I've heard this now a number of times. It's been so corrupted by politics, like everything has been so corrupted by politics and the pressure of the corporations. Well, it's now made up of corporate executives who get rewarded for having, uh, you know, given large sums of money uh, to, the, to, to the political candidates, to the president and others, and they end up being recycled into the, into the Food and Drug Administration. Mm. Uh, even though they've dragged their feet, they have to issue a black box warning, which is the highest level of warning that can be given to any medication prior to its being taken off the market. So we're not talking about anything now that's just conjectural. 
Uh, everybody now seems to agree that there is this correlation. But there's another critical question uh, that I want to ask you, and I certainly have my own opinion on this. And by the way, if anybody wants to call in with their opinions on this, one of the things I hear argued is that these people never would have done what they did violently um, unless they were already, it's part of the depression, part of their anger, part of their psychological problems and makeup. And that raises a, a very profound issue. Do these chemical effects and psychological effects merely release what's there? Or in your opinion, can they actually take somebody who has really no particular tendency towards violence uh, and create the conditions for it. Well, I think, think I think the phenomenon of akathisia, uh, I think yes and no. I think the phenomenon of akathisia is clearly something that is so far beyond the ken of normal, the, so far beyond the realm of what ordinary humans are experiencing, short of some toxic insult to the basal ganglia, a specific region of the brain, like a brain tumor or uh -huh. a stroke. Uh, it's such an unusual thing that when you see it and when somebody comes in and suddenly experiences it like it's an overnight thing, uh, you really could not miss it or, or you shouldn't miss it. I mean, it should certainly be something that is highlighted, bolded, put in, in uh, neon lights, and, and doctors in training should really have this uh, emphasized as a huge, you know, red light, do not pass go, this is an emergency, this person should not leave your office, you know, this is something to really pay attention to and immediately treat, immediately recognize it and immediately treat it if you see akathisia. By the so way, is there a treatment for akathisia? Because sure, I had sure. clients who had akathisia and uh, nothing could be done. Sure. And in fact, some of the psychiatrists treating them simply upped the dose of the medication uh, as the way of treating it. Oh, Lord. Well, that would not be the way to treat it. Uh, historically, physicians have been instructed, and, and most textbooks of pharmacology uh, you know, offer this as the first-line intervention, is to very often add a beta blocker, uh, an antihypertensive medicine, the idea being to try and shut down the sympathetic nervous system and to diminish some of that activity. Uh, and also have a central effect. So a beta blocker is something that's used. In fact, I had an experience a couple of summers ago where a gentleman had been on a beta blocker, I think for some other reasons, and skipped, missed his usual dose over the weekend. Now, he was also on an antipsychotic drug, and guess what he got for the very first time? Akathisia. His beta blocker uh -huh. went away accidentally, and we sort of solved it like a detective, you know, like a mystery. Next time I saw him, I said, what did you do over the weekend that might have been different? And he said, I forgot my beta blocker. I ran out of it. And I said, well, I think what you just experienced was akathisia from your antipsychotic drug. And he put the beta blocker back and things were okay again. So beta blockers are one way. Uh, classically, another approach, you know, obviously, is you want to remove the offending agent. And if a person is on an antipsychotic drug, or sometimes people will be on antipsychotic drugs that are not recognized as such, meaning um, one of the most common causes of akathisia in a hospital uh, would be an antiemetic, a drug that's given for nausea or vomiting after uh -huh. surgery. So I've been consulted many times to see a person who's having profound akathisia and real restlessness go through the medication list and you find out they're on uh, a drug that's been given to them for nausea or vomiting. So if you take away that drug, um, you get Phenergan or, or um, uh, Reglan, uh, you can actually see that their akathisia goes away. So you want to remove the offending or the culprit agent. Now, sometimes you can't remove drugs fast enough because you don't want to throw the person into withdrawal syndrome from removing that drug too quickly if they've been on a very high dose. But reducing the dose 
and adding a beta blocker, or sometimes people will try actually using a small uh, anxiety medicine to try and relieve some of that psychological discomfort. Right, right. But again, this is such an important thing to not miss and such an important thing to recognize that family members or loved ones or friends need to be prepared for this, and certainly the patients should be prepared for this as a potential side effect. Uh, again, it's, it's sort of ignored as a rule. People, um, doctors have not been instructed appropriately, in my opinion, about the fact that antidepressants and the serotonin reuptake inhibitors are a very good example of this, are essentially mini neuroleptics. They are mini antipsychotics in terms of shutting off some of the dopamine in the brain through a slightly different mechanism than the real heavy-duty antipsychotics. And, mm. and we really miss the fact that this is an effect that many patients, well, I won't say most, but many patients nonetheless will be quite sensitive to these dopamine effects. Um, so that's just that's one thing. So, yes, there is a treatment. You mentioned there is a possibility that the akathisia can become more pronounced or, you know, I would want, I would want to say that there is something called tardive akathisia, meaning that somebody might not begin to demonstrate this as a side effect of a medication right. until, until they've been on the drug for a while. Yeah. And it's very important for doctors and for patients to know that this could be something that breaks through later on. You hope it's reversible if you right, take away the drug. That's the other question. Uh, right. I had a woman who had come to me uh, in desperation, and I really couldn't help her. And that, by the way, that was, was one of the first times. This is, goes back into the, into the 90s. Mm. Uh, I really couldn't help her. She had been off. Um, uh, she had been on a, a, a Prozac or Paxil for maybe a year, and was off now for three or four months. And the akathisia was becoming more and more unbearable. And somebody had suggested to her that I'm a psychologist. Maybe I could help her deal with it psychologically. Mm. And it seemed to me, as I and I'm listening to you, and I completely agree with you, this was a medical emergency. Right, and, and and while I could yeah. try to give her some breathing exercises, and I suggested warm baths and the taking a walk, uh, I realized I was whistling in the wind. This was something horrendous. I mean, it, this was. It is, it is horrendous, but you were not totally whistling in the wind for two reasons. Well, first of all, the timing that you just mentioned is really critical. If you said three or four months after stopping a drug like Prozac, right, uh, it's not unusual for that to still represent Prozac withdrawal. Prozac. Uh, is a fluorinated compound. Um, it stays in the brain for uh, and in the bloodstream for an extremely long time. Has uh, probably the longest half-life. It, do, it does have the longest half-life of all of the serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And we know now that it is something that um, you know you you can still have detectable brain levels of this drug uh, for for months. So in fact. Uh-huh you would not really describe or you would not necessarily anticipate Prozac withdrawal to be seen in some people until three or four months after stopping. So that's one point. See, I was ignorant about that point. Most people Uh, are, and I was too until I had to do all this research. So don't feel bad, Larry. (laughs) Well, I don't feel bad, although I feel bad that I I absolutely couldn't help this person. And the suffering was enormous, and she kept saying, if I can't get relief, I want to die. Yeah, that's what and her husband up. sat next to her, and he started to cry. I mean, oh, God. He, well, he he said, "Well, you know, that's yeah. what happens. You work with people who are in that kind of suffering. You bet. Uh, it's not only the victim here was not only the woman, but her right. family. Well, the, the whole the family other, was sure. And, the, and to compound that, the injury to compound it is the fact that without proper identification of what may have been contributing or causing the experience." 
this is usually the kind of thing that gets blamed on the patient. This yes. is your underlying illness coming back, or now yes. you have a new problem, right? So instead yes. of identifying it for what it is, a, a real neurotoxic effect of a treatment, the poor patient goes away with the fact that not only is the symptom not getting better, but now the patient her, herself or himself has been blamed for having a psychological or some other cause other than the rightful cause. Right. It's, nothing it's, a but, of, yeah. it's a kind of act of violence, a second act of violence on of the violence. individual that compounds the violence that's beginning to take place. Absolutely. By the way, what you recommended for for approaches were, were extremely sound and extremely helpful. What um, people with acusthesia will do uh, on their own is figure out that moving helps, exercise can help. Even passive movement, like physical therapists, will actually move the legs of someone who is having acusthesia. There have been some published studies on this. And the passive movement of the limb will actually um, you know, give some benefit to people as well. Um, so there are different ways to try and help a person, but this concept of you know, the psychological torture that people experience, to get back to, to your question, is it possible for a medication to be given to someone and, and cause something completely out of the ordinary that would actually cause someone to jump off a cliff? Yes, and you're describing it. It's accuracy. You know, I, I wanted to add one more thing, and then we came back to the right, at the right place. Mm. Uh, the two boys who shot all those people in Columbine, mm. remember? Yes. One of his victims, uh, what were the, do you remember the names? Uh, I think, well, I think one of the boys was, uh, was it Eric Harris? Yes, Eric Harris. Right, he was one. Eric and, Harris. Yes. One of his victims sued the drug company. I don't know where the suit is now. I should really look it up. I should have been prepared to discuss this. <laughs> sued the drug companies because he claimed that until Eric Harris was put on that drug by a psychiatrist, he was a pussycat. Wow. They were friends. I had never and heard nobody, that. And nobody, nobody saw any kind of of of, um, of indication that this kind of violence could take place. What I find fascinating is that immediately the news media, which I think is about eighty-five or ninety percent controlled by the corporations, right began to talk about how he wore this black coat and and he was that was all incredibly recent that mm. the kid before that had good relationships with some of the kids that children they shot um you remember the, the university of virginia tragedy was it virginia right. yeah mm -hmm. virginia tech right and this kid quo who did all the shooting immediately people like us asked was he on an ssri Apparently he was, and we waited for the results to come out in the media. Mm -hmm. They buried it. Sure. They buried it, Grace. It never came out. Right. And I don't think it ever will unless somebody has a, a massive twinge of conscience. So I really wonder how much of his behavior was motivated by, by this, this disabling of the brain and the psychology of an individual. Sure. Well, I think there are two two aspects. I think you know. I think most of the cases are people who begin with problems and get placed on medications by individuals who really intend intend good, who want to see someone improve, who don't want to see something terrible happen. And so I think in most of these cases, we're talking about individuals who may have had some real problems for a period of time who are then placed on medications. And in, in that case, there are really two issues here. Is the medication, in fact, causing something that is very, very qualitatively different 
so that the person right. can act in a different personality or, or begin something clearly new? Or is it the fact that there's an intensification of something that was already there? Right. So whether or not you want to respond to numerous school shootings, and I think some people have lists of these. I think there have been at least 20 of these like in the past uh, 10 years in the United States alone uh, with some connections to these psychiatric medications, not all SSRIs, but almost all of them, uh, most of them with these antidepressants. I think whether or not you want to go so far as to say the drugs caused the event, I think it's clear at this point that we should be recognizing the fact that these drugs do not prevent these events. Right. And that being the fact, it's not just, I would argue, it's not just the chemical, the chemical nature of these drugs that are, the main, that are the only problem. I would also go far to say that because we are now relying upon these drugs, as the main intervention, we are actually depriving people of the real kinds of assistance that mm-hmm. could prevent these events. Right. So I think that the tragedies in these events are in, in two different levels. One is the chemical effects of the drugs themselves, and second is the societal dependence on these drugs, which prevents the delivery of services that would otherwise uh, right. hopefully prevent the events. Right. Uh, I wanted to move on to something else but say one more thing about this, and that is, What's so interesting here is that if somebody drinks and drives or drinks and engages in an act of violence, we hold them responsible, not necessarily because uh, they wouldn't have committed the same act had they not drunk, but with foresight, they drank. It was their decision. So they're responsible. Here we have something where the person themselves is told that this is the treatment for their ailment. And therefore, there, as you in your book talk about, and, and your main concept, there's no informed consent. Right. I, I think you're you're getting at something uh, which is uh, extremely important topic, and, and one that could just take an entire hour. But but I would say that now personally, my, my personal belief at this moment in time is that the the severity of the potential events that could occur, be they suicide or homicide or both, are are so terrible uh, that the unpredictability of the events should actually militate against the use of these drugs. Now, I'm not saying that these drugs would not potentially have some other purposes, let's say as chemotherapies for cancer or to actually get rid of certain insects or to get rid of malaria or, or something else. But the idea of using this class of substances to actually improve a human's judgment or behavior is something that I think uh, is, is so misfounded in the first place in terms of the um, dismal efficacy that the potential safety hazards grossly outweigh the defense of their use. So I and think here, I think, here, I agree so, with you. Yeah. That this these set of drugs should be had the same warnings on them, um, and that may be even made illegal. Um, yeah, if they're, if they're not illegal, then they should be over the counter and in the same spot as alcohol, or or we might say, you know, uh, make them you know, illicit substances where you assume the risk of using them just as you would with LSD or psilocybin mushroom or, or something else that is mind-altering and Interesting. unpredictable. Interesting. They're Interesting. mind-altering and unpredictable, and to that extent, we, we were returning to the concept of informed consent. Where is it? And there are really two things that have come up in the law because of these kinds of episodes. Uh, one is the concept of involuntary intoxication, whether or not a person who commits some horrible act under the influence of these medications is in fact involuntarily intoxicated. 
And another concept, yeah, it's something which has created uh, all kinds of problems in the legal profession uh, and in the forensic community. The, the second question, which is somewhat related to this, but no one's really talking about it that I can see, and, and it has profound implications for our forensic system, is the concept of uh, what is called settled insanity, the idea that somebody could take a substance in the past but actually have long-lasting negative effects on behavior or judgment so that a person, let's say, who started on Prozac or Zoloft or Ritalin when they were five or six uh, reaches uh, their adolescence and goes on a shooting, uh, shooting binge and you don't really know what happened in their brain between the ages of five and 18. Who's responsible? Yes. So these are profoundly important questions, very complex questions. One other issue that was raised, and I really don't want to discuss this because <laughs> I want to get to, to a kind of summing up, yeah. um, and that is I imagine we have all kinds of police officers and soldiers and other people who carry heavy armament on these drugs. Oh, I'm glad you mentioned this. I, oh, yeah, I, I mean, it, it, yeah. I mean... The idea, for example, every once in a while you see a cop who fires 50 shots at somebody, what appeared to be, you know, a minor infraction. And again, I support the police. I mean, I do not want to beat up on the police. Uh, we have down here in Florida a terrible crime, crime where we're getting worse all the time. And the only thing standing between us in a cave and sitting in my house with a shotgun to protect myself mm. are the police. And yet you do see police that go off in which the response is so outmeasured and so ir- ir- you know, irrelevant and over the top compared to what it seemed to be called for, that you wonder, given oh, the stress I, I, level, are these people being medicated? Sure. I, you want me to, to give you my, my personal experience, and, and I get more and more of these reports from some of my friends, is that we are living with a, a profound and increasing number of authorities, quote-unquote authority figures, be they teachers, doctors, airline pilots, nurses, flight attendants, who are taking these drugs. Psychiatrists and psychologists. Psychiatrists and psychologists, yeah, who are taking these drugs. Now, before you and I started the show today, I said I hope we would have time to speak about violence in, in more than just the phenomenon of violent events, be they and suicide. And, and this is really what I think is sort of the, the hidden violence in terms of creating an atmosphere or a culture of violence whereby those of us who would like to live in a system that permits freedom of thought and permits responsibility and permits the opportunity to have all of human emotions is actually now living increasingly in a world or atmosphere of the altered, the chemically altered, sort of like invasion of the body snatchers. So in my opinion, another kind of violence which has uh, grown up in the atmosphere of the era of Prozac and drugs like it uh, has really been the creation of this atmosphere where there are the people who are taking the drugs, like invasion of the body snatchers, and then the rest of us who are unaltered. And so this really raises some profound questions when the judgment of nurses and doctors and police officers uh, becomes hampered or impaired by these drugs. Where does that really leave the rest of us who are dependent upon these authority figures for our medical care, for our safety, for our teaching, uh, and on and on. Uh, there have been yeah, many events. I'm glad you mentioned soldiers because what I think is one of the great ironies is that in the 1960s we had so many people in Vietnam 
who were taking heroin yes. and LSD and cannabis to get through the war experience. And now sort of the reversal of that is the fact that we are uh, supplying the prescription drugs to our soldiers in Afghanistan and Iraq, getting them hooked on these substances while they're in the theater, in the field. They return to the United States on these drugs, maybe miss their drugs or increase the drugs, and there have been many homicides or suicides or homicide suicides that I am certain nobody yet has done a study to actually put the numbers together and really do a serious inquiry as to how these medications may have actually altered the situation in the direction sure. of making things worse. What, what they'll say is that this was post-traumatic stress disorder, which is the worst piece of garbage diagnosis I've ever heard. In fact, I think sometime I'm going to do a show just on post-traumatic stress disorder where you send people who come from the United States and basically raised in, in good homes and taught don't be violent. Uh, we try to suppress bullying and we try to, to keep our society violence-free. I mean, it's the ethic that, that uh, doesn't work, but it's the ethic. And here they go to hell, literally to hell, and I don't care what you feel about the war, whether you're pro or against it, war as somebody I read an article by said, it's, it's, it's basically industrial age slaughter at this point. And to go in and maim and kill and be killed and maim, be maimed and watch this carnage in which life has no meaning, and then come back and say, well, you're upset and therefore you have a psychiatric disorder and should be put on these drugs, is to me such a, a perversity that I can't even put it into words. But yeah. the psychological consequences are now to disable the brain of an individual who doesn't have a disabled brain. He's just experienced something that you hope your child never has to experience. Right. Right. It's it's profound. I mean, the uh, it's profound. It is the the we're talking about such a a huge capital question mark and the existential abyss it is the capital L loss of meaning for young people to find themselves in the midst of a political economic situation uh, very similar to Vietnam, where there are arguments for and against, a society torn apart, but for the most part people ignoring this because 1% yes. of the population is off fighting. The rest of us are not making sacrifices, certainly not like World War II. Yeah, we're every, taking Prozac family, and drinking. That's it, take Prozac and drink. But the, the real perversity is just what you're saying, Larry, the, the concept that these would be individuals who come back are experiencing a human and authentic reaction, and then are told, just take this pill and shut up. Yeah. You know, this, uh, take this pill, it will fix things. Uh, it, it may modify some of the symptoms for veterans, and I certainly don't want to deny the fact that medications alter the brain. But I would then argue the fact that we have a real moral and scientific obligation to fully understand the total effects of these drugs and to see if the long-term uh, changes in the brain are actually compatible with recovery or, or return of function or something other than... Well, well, that's the point. I, see, I hate the word at this point, symptoms. Right. When I somebody comes back from war right. and, and, see, and has lived through what they lived through, who's normal? Those of us who ignore the war or those of yeah. us who are affected? I remember well, when the when the towers yeah. went down in New York, and all of a sudden Prozac sales went up ten percent, and everybody said that all my colleagues said you have to get into therapy because you've been traumatized. Wow! I asked, how come they weren't traumatized? I was traumatized. 
Yeah. If you were a citizen and you watched this happen, and you smelled the burning bodies, and you watched people jump out of buildings holding hands, mm. uh, and, the, and the cops and the firemen who described pots of bodies raining down on them for right. an hour, uh, who's, who's normal? The person who says, this is beyond my endurance, or the person who says, okay, nothing's okay, we'll go shopping, we'll go to the theater, we'll go out for dinner. Good you point. have to really ask, who has the disease, <laughs> who has the disorder? Good point. Very good point. Well, anyway, then, yeah. uh, I sort of, we're out of time, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, although we could go over, uh, first let me thank you. Uh, oh, I think thank three you. sessions have been absolutely so wonderful. Um, I enjoyed them. I think you enjoyed them. Very much. I, I think you're absolutely fabulous, and I think that the, the two of us have danced together now for several, <laughs> for almost three hours, and it's been a very pleasant experience. Uh, let's stay on for a second if anybody wants to call in. Sure. Uh, if you want to call in and ask uh, myself or Dr. Jackson a question, uh, we've had a number of listeners who've been here with, with us almost from the beginning or from the entire show, I think more than usual. Mm. And uh, I can't imagine that there is no reaction to this. But So we'll hold it off a second. And... Um, while we're waiting, I, I thought one of the interesting things, we talk about how the news media is so silent about the role that these medications might play. Um, did you, had you realized that Lady Princess Diana's driver had been taking Prozac and Tyapride at the time no, of the I accident? No, I did not. Totally, totally covered up in the U.S. media. He had traces of Prozac and an antipsychotic in his, in his body as well as alcohol. But the impact of Prozac... uh, uh, Grace, I think we're finished. I think we went off the air. No problem. Okay? All Uh, right. Take care. You too. And uh, we're going to do this again sometime. Sounds great. Thanks for having me on again, Larry. Okay. Ciao. Bye-bye now.